Hello, everybody. Welcome to our latest episode of the Healing the Nations podcast. And we have a very special guest. His name is Jim Dickinson. Uh, Mr. Dickinson, thank you so much for joining us here today. As we began, I, I suppose it would be, I, and I, I may make you blush a little bit, or, or I don't mean to be flattering, but I just want to say thank you because I believe that the work that you're doing here with this podcast is important. And I had the opportunity before uh, we sat down today to, to listen to some of the recent podcasts that you've recorded, and I was truly blessed by what I heard. I think that you're reaching people outside of the Seventh-day Adventist Church and also persons within the church, and yours is a most important work especially at this time. Uh, praise the Lord. Uh, we praise God for this. this is a ministry that's very dear to me. In a sense, this is a little reunion because we went to grad school, college together a long uh, time ago. Yeah, and we did. Good to be reconnected again. Uh, can you tell us a little bit of what you do now? Sure. Currently? Sure. I, I'm an attorney. I practice law in the city of Chico, California. That's up in Butte County, uh, B-U-T-T-E. Uh, you may have heard of Butte County in the news recently, a, a, one of the major cities in Butte County, if there, if there are major cities, kind of a small county. Uh, the town of Paradise burned down uh, last November, November 2018, and my folks lost their home in the fire. Uh, my grandfather was uh, displaced. Um, we were living in Chico at the time down the hill, and uh, we were not directly affected, but really everyone in Butte County has been affected directly or indirectly by this fire, quite devastating. Uh, in any case, what do I do there? I, I practice uh, civil litigation in its various permutations with the exception of personal injury and employment law. Um, I'm married. Uh, my wife Celeste and I have been married for almost 12 years. It will be uh, 12 years in 10 days, August 12th. So um, uh, my, my wife will be proud of me for remembering that date. And we have a, a daughter who is five years old, and it's just a lot of fun being a husband and a dad. A family is a great blessing. It is, indeed. And we just praise God for the opportunity to have another attorney to join us in this podcast. Our last attorney was uh, uh, Elder Alan Reineck in our previous episode. So, a and, question. And, and I want to just say for a minute, um, Alan Reineck is a fine man. He is a brilliant man. He is a man that has helped me in a number of ways. And if he's listening to this podcast, I want to say thank you to Alan, too, because um, the work that you're doing, Alan, is very important. So if you have a chance to listen to Alan's um, uh, recording with uh, Peter as well, that would be fantastic to do, too. Yes, indeed. Uh, I have a connection with uh, Elder Reinick. I was a uh, legal researcher for him back when I was in law school, so... That's another connection, these personal connections that we have with one another. So here's my first question. There's a growing sense of opposition among people within the Seventh Avenue Church towards Muslims. There's some hostility towards Islam that I've seen through social media. And uh, I had a friend that posted on the need for religious liberty for all people, and he got fierce opposition from various Seventh-day Adventists emailing him. And he's a pastor, and he's, he's a speaker that travels all around. As Christians, should we fight for religious liberty for all people or just Christians? Yeah, this is a really good question, and I'm going to preface what I'm going to say here by just saying, and I don't know that I need to say it, but I'll say it anyway, that what I'm sharing here today is me not with, with my legal hat on. I'm not speaking as a lawyer. I'm just talking to you, Peter, as a believer in Jesus and as a citizen. Um, but I think uh, there will be some issues that we'll discuss that will have some political uh, implications, legal implications, etc. But to your question, 
Uh, the short answer is that we should fight for religious liberty for all people. But if I may, I'd like to unpack that a little bit. So I have here in my notes, um, where does this concept of liberty or freedom come from? Um, should there even be freedom? Why not have elites, some superior individuals uh, with superior morals and wisdom uh, control our every choice? Um, I ask this question, does, does it not come from the biblical understanding of God in Christ? What I mean by this is in the Bible we see this triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are in loving communion from eternity past, um, uh, relating to one another in, in love, and they make a decision to express that love by creating intelligent beings with whom they can share that love, beings who can love them and whom they can love back. So it would seem that God is after love. It would follow, therefore, that a tenet in God's kingdom, maybe the fundamental tenet, is freedom. And why is that? For love to be love, it must be freely given. If I hold a gun to someone's head and say, love me, demand love, I will expect something back indeed, but it won't be love. It will be something else entirely. So for there to be love, there must be freedom. God is committed to freedom. And I have here underlined in my notes that religious liberty is the application of that commitment, that commitment to freedom to the world of politics. So if we're trying to define what is religious liberty, it's this commitment that I believe comes from God to freedom applied to the world of politics. And so in a very real way, Peter, when you champion religious uh, freedom or religious liberty, you are in fact doing the work of God. Um, and so to your question again, to kind of summarize, I, I believe that we are all God's children. We are created in his image and irrespective of race, creed, etc., we should all be free to believe or to not believe. So yes, we should fight for the religious liberty or the religious freedom of all people and not just Christians. This uh, most recent presidential election in 2016, one of the issues was uh, religious liberty and the growing hostility between the LGBTQ community with Christians in regards to the position of marriage. Could there be a realistic way of a middle ground between the LGBTQ community and Christians in this issue? Can both sides meet halfway on this for those that adhere to marriage between a man and a woman and those that want same-sex marriage? So this is a really good question. In fact, of the questions that you gave me, this was the most difficult, which is why I think it's so good. Um, and it's good because we're wrestling with these issues um, in our church. We're wrestling with them on an individual level as well. At least we should be. So I'll state this as an initial um, point or matter, and that is that I'm a Seventh-day Adventist. I believe as a matter of faith the teachings of the church regarding marriage and the family. Um, and so I said that. Now, turning to things political, uh, I'd like to take the attention off of what I believe, which is you know, <laughs> really irrelevant. I'd like for the listener to be able to examine um, some key arguments to, to question premises uh, on which are assumptions on which those arguments are based and reach conclusions that they find uh, consistent with their understanding of, of what it is that they are to do. Um, informed by, um, by the Holy Spirit and the teachings of Scripture. So what I'd like to do is try to highlight the tension raised by your question by putting forth the best arguments I heard from each side in the gay marriage debate. Um, I will also mention, as I go through these arguments, um, what I believe are the vulnerabilities in the arguments 
And again, the point is, is for the listener to be able to examine the, the arguments and the premises underlying the arguments to try to reach a conclusion for him or herself. So here we go. So the best argument, uh, and this is in my opinion, of course, from the proponents of same-sex marriage is an equality argument. It goes something like this. Maybe you've heard it. Homosexuality is an inherent, immutable trait like race or gender, and one should not be discriminated against on the basis of such characteristic or impliedly on the expression of such characteristic. The point of vulnerability in this argument relates to the concepts of inherence and immutability. Inherence is the argument, hey, I'm, I'm born this way. Immutability is I can't change it and I should not be expected to change. So the listener should look at those, those assumptions, those premises, and do some research, look into those, uh, those claims, and find out if that's something that, that, um, that can hold. Also, the listener will need to look at um, the, the implied premise, which is the expression of that characteristic. Um, is, is that uh, something that is, is part and parcel of having the characteristic, such that the, the individual, if they have a characteristic, must necessarily express it in a certain way in this context, um, I, I presume, uh, marriage. So there, there are several things to examine. There are some, some vulnerabilities, I'd call them, uh, in examining that argument. The best argument, I believe, from the other side goes like this. And before I get into the actual stating the actual argument itself, I'd like to look at the assumption that underlies, or the primary assumption that underlies this argument, which is that the state or the government generally has no interest in private arrangements or agreements, but inserts itself into marriage not for the sake of the parties to the marriage, but for those who are the product of the marriage. In other words, the health, safety, and welfare of the children of the marriage is the state's interest. The state inserts itself into the marriage relation for the protection of, of the offspring of the marriage, of the, the product of the marriage, the children of the marriage. Um, now, this assumption can be examined. The most obvious way that someone can challenge this assumption or this premise would be to suggest an alternate state or government interest that would permit the state or the government to insert itself into the marriage. In doing this, though, persons rendering this critique should ensure that the interest is a governmental and not a private interest. Now, this critique can also be made of the argument itself, which argument goes like this. So this is the argument. Assuming homosexuality is an inherent immutable trait, which premises, as stated, may be assumed, what interest does the state, not the parties to the marriage, have in recognizing with the attendant rights and obligations a marital relationship which definitionally or in principle produces no offspring? So let's unpack that. The key point in this argument is that unlike an elderly or an infertile heterosexual couple, that is a man and a woman, whose inability to procreate is incidentally impossible to their relationship, a homosexual couple's inability to procreate have children, to have product of the marriage, is inherently, definitionally, and in principle impossible. Thus, the argument concludes that the state has no interest in recognizing such a marital relationship. Hey, isn't this fun? You, know, you can see that some of these things are a little bit difficult, and I just want to conclude by saying, what is it that I've said here? What have I actually said? I've said that I personally believe as a matter of faith in the Seventh-day Adventist position on marriage and the family, 
But on the political level, there are questions to be asked and answered that the listener will have to do um, on his or her own. And <laughs> all I can say is that it's these are questions we need to try to resolve. We need to try to figure them out um, for ourselves um, specifically. I think we need to talk about them as a, as a church body, too. And the church's relationships to some of these issues uh, is obviously part of that as well. So I've only sort of punted on the question, Peter, but it's, you know, it's a quasi-punt, as it were. You shared with me privately that the most recent presidential election impacted you in a profound way. Can you share what you went through, your journey on this issue? Yeah, so I, what I'll do is I'll say this. Um, I, I did tell you privately that I have given up partisan politics, and I have, I have here kind of half-jokingly in my notes, my name is Jim, and I'm a recovering political holic. You know, you know, they go there, we'll call it PA meetings, right? Hi, Jim, welcome to the meeting. You know, joking aside, right, um, my wife and I used to be registered Republicans. Oh, yes, um, it's, uh, it's, it's hard to believe, but it's true. Um, the reason for that is that we resonated with the ideas of small government, lower taxes, and the party's position supporting human life. And um, we decided um, yeah, last year that we would no longer have party affiliation, and I'll, I'll kind of come back to that in a minute and unpack that. But before I do, if I may have just a, a brief blurb on, uh, on an issue and not supporting a party, just an issue, we are still very pro-life. Um, since 1973, Roe v. Wade was decided, the case that uh, found that there's a constitutional right to an abortion um, decided by the United States Supreme Court. Um, 60 million um, fetuses or infants um, have been aborted in the United States. And so if, if one is to believe that the fetus or the infant is in fact human life, it's not hard to, to argue that abortion is the human rights issue of our time. Um, I don't believe that there's a contradiction here, and I'll explain why for two reasons. First, um, there are persons that are coming to this conclusion irrespective of religious belief, not from a religious standpoint at all. This is anecdotal, I realize, but if you go to YouTube and you look at a pro-life video, you'll see a number of atheists and non-religious persons saying that they have reached the pro-life position purely based on the science. Um, additionally, um, I don't believe that, um, for example, um, Passing a law that prohibits murder or violence is an establishment of religion. And we protect uh, fetal life, human life, and other contexts. For example, in the state of California, which is where we're sitting as we're recording this podcast, if an individual were to murder a pregnant woman, that individual could be charged with not one but two counts of violation of Penal Code Section 187, Subdivision A, which is murder. Uh, in other states, uh, there's protection for fetal or infant life um, in the context of, for example, a wrongful death action where uh, persons would be able to recover money damages not just for the loss of the life of the mother but also the fetus. So if the infant or fetus is human life, I believe that it's entitled to freedom, namely the freedom to live. And I, I'm kind of joking. I've done a few little uh, half jokes today, but I want to just share this test with you. Uh, my daughter, Alyssa, she's five when she was a little bit younger, three or four. I held up to her a picture of a six-week-old fetus, and I asked her, what is this? And she says, it's a baby. 
And if a three-year-old is able to look at that and, and divine that that's a baby, determine that that's a baby, uh, that works for me. Now, I understand that's not very scientific, and you can criticize that all you want, but there is a scripture in the Bible that says, a little child shall lead us, and I think in that instance, that is certainly the case. If it's obvious or self-evident to those who have not been propagandized that this is, in fact, human life, um, I think it should be obvious to the rest of us, and we should ask ourselves why it is not obvious to us if it's not. And so there's my kind of aside, my, my commercial. Um, but to your question, no, we, we no longer have a party affiliation. Um, the reason for this, for me, my wife can articulate her position um, for herself, but she's, of course, not here, is that I believe that populism or majoritarianism, which um, the current president exemplifies, is extremely dangerous. It functions without regard to principle or the Constitution. And um, w as it relates to the current president, whatever restraints had been placed on him by the Republican Party, say prior to last year, 2018, have been removed. The Republican Party is his. And for that reason, we do not want to be a part of it. Um, and, and I don't mean to bash Donald Trump. Um, it's obvious to me and to probably most people that are paying attention that the establishment of both parties have failed and lost control. And we will be left with a populist, whether it be a Donald Trump or a Bernie Sanders. And so the question is, would you like the devil in red or the devil in blue? And my wife and I have decided we would rather not have a devil at all so we no longer have a party affiliation. Uh, so I, I hope that answers your question I, in, in a roundabout way. So uh, piggybacking on that question, the current presidential administration has been uh, quite open in embracing uh, evangelical Christian voter base. And uh, many Adventists also believe that this is good in some way in that it is advocating the protection of their rights and their interests. So what do you say of the growing alliance between uh, these, uh, this segment of Protestantism with the current administration? Yeah, that's a really good, good question. Um, I understand, though I'm not someone that studies this, that claims of faith and spirituality in America have stayed relatively high as compared to, for example, other Western countries um, over the last um, few decades while at the same time traditional indicia of religion, such as church membership and attendance, have fallen off steadily. So um, many organized religions and denominations are therefore dying. So you have this phenomenon coupled with an aggressive agenda in recent years by the secular left, which has placed Christians generally and conservative Christianity, which I'd include in that evangelicals and traditional Catholics, in a position where their influence in the culture is, is lessening more and more uh, each day. And so um, they're concerned with this, obviously. Um, I'm sympathetic to these concerns, um, but I do not believe the answer is to appeal to political power. The reason for that is there is no salvation there. In the book of Psalms, um, chapter 118, verse 9, we read, It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. Psalm 146, verse 3 says, Put not your trust in princes, nor in the Son of Man, in whom there is no help. So we have a God. If we're Christian, he's in heaven. Other faiths would argue they do too, but let's, we're talking about conservative Christianity. We have a God. He's in heaven. 
He's not aloof or disinterested. In fact, he is affectionately concerned with our situation, and we should pray to him. That's the biblical model. So to your question, what business do Christians have in making political alliances with the government? The answer is, I would argue, none. Um, but what do we see? So I have with me a, a magazine that we won't, we won't uh, name off here, but in this magazine that deals with religious liberty, uh, there's a picture in, in the middle uh, in, in an article that has the president um, uh, being prayed for by a number of religious leaders, clergy members. Some of them have their hands on him. Others are kind of holding their hands up. Others are bowing their, their heads in prayer. Um, so these persons are coming to the White House on a regular basis to pray for the president. And I imagine, and I think it's obvious, that they're doing more than just wanting to pray for him. There's something more that they're seeking. They're seeking to appeal to the political power uh, in the United States. And they're doing this, I believe, uh, for the survival of the faith, capital F. This is the Christian faith. So they believe that if they don't appeal to political power, they will lose influence, they'll lose um, control, as it were. And I think many of these persons are sincere, though wrong, um, but sincere nonetheless. And we should, of course, pray for them um, because um, Christ knows which uh, of these individuals are his and which uh, may be his still. And he wants to reach even those persons, too. What should we as Seventh-day Adventists do during this highly polarizing political era that we're in right now? It's a really good question. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer it somewhat indirectly. And uh, if you have follow-ups, Peter, you may certainly ask them. But I want to just say this. I, I would like to have a little bit of a gospel appeal, so I'm going to make one here. Um, we serve an amazing God a God who is altogether lovely and the chiefest among ten thousands, not because of his superior power, but because of his superior love. On the cross, there is Jesus pouring out his life for his avowed enemies, forgiving them and revealing that there is no selfishness in him. There's no selfishness in God. And if we've seen Jesus, we've seen the Father. What did Jesus say again and again? Fear not. We have a God who has given us freedom, we have run and hid. We have covered ourselves with fig leaves, but he is calling us, asking that we stop running from him so that he can heal us, so that he can change us from his, from his angry enemies to his beloved friends. In the book Steps to Christ, Ellen White writes, it is no arbitrary decree on the part of God that excludes the wicked from heaven. It is their choice. God is seeking to save. He is seeking to heal. The doors of heaven are open for each one. To know him is life eternal. So what I would say, in an indirect way, is that what we should do as Adventists is to get to know him, to look to Jesus, and extricate ourselves, take ourselves out of these political fights. Don't parrot what is said by either party and try to seek uh, the one who, who gave us freedom at the beginning and wants to preserve our freedom clear through to the end. That's what I would say. So following up on our responsibility to study the character of Christ and implement that in our personal lives. Uh, I just want to piggyback on a hot social and political issue right now, immigration. Now, as I scour Adventists and social media, there's two frames of thought. One position is, is that we live in a nation of law and order, and therefore these individuals have come into this nation illegally, and therefore they should suffer the legal consequences of these actions. Uh, some going as far as saying that 
their conscience is seared and therefore because their conscience is seared committing sin by breaking the law that they have no problem breaking into people's homes once they're here. The other frame of thought is that we need to protect them. We need to admonish them. We need to provide for them. We need to do everything we can to protect and to provide for these individuals that have come into this nation, even though they've come in breaking the law. So in implementing the character of Christ, how do we view this in the lens of the principles of the gospel? I, I wouldn't say that I'm an expert on this, and I will say that I probably need to think about this issue some more, but my initial response to this would be that um, put yourself in their shoes. So you're you're living in Honduras, you're living in Guatemala, you're living someplace, and I'm not obviously putting those countries down by no means, but um, it's chaos. Uh, gangs run... Uh, the city's threats are made to you and your family that if you don't pay, they're going to hurt you or kill you or, or someone that you love. Um, what do you do? You flee. And where do you go? Well, you go to someplace that's better. And that has meant for many people to come north, uh, head north to the United States. And those persons have come here to uh, find asylum. Um, many of them don't even know necessarily what that concept, um, how to articulate that concept to persons at the border or through points, uh, ports of entry. Um, nonetheless, they're here uh, to, to flee um, what it is that they're experiencing in their home country. How can we fault them? I mean, would we do anything differently than that if we were in their position? So, so they're here. Um, the question of whether that should be uh, characterized as a crime or not, um, probably for, for purposes of this discussion, it uh, doesn't matter a lot um, if we're Christian and we were to love our enemies, we're to bless those who, um, who, who curse us and, and would break into our homes. I mean, obviously that's some uh, scapegoating and there's, you know, trying to, to create the other there so that we can treat them poorly. That's, that's demonizing and all sorts of problems with, with that type of logic. Um, yeah, so we, we need to treat them um, as members of the church as humans, and we need to advocate that they be treated humanely. So when children are locked in cages, that we say something about that. When families are separated, that we say something about that. That when um, uh, the president uses um, immigrants as scapegoats, uh, that we say something about that, that we have a voice on those issues, and we not fall prey to the temptation because of our own fears or political biases um, or something even more uh, subversive or, or darker to the, uh, to the concept that these people, these persons are um, irredeemable, that they're subhuman, that they're not worthy of our respect and our love. Um, Christ was very intentional about reaching out to the outcast, about reaching out to those persons that were not part of the cool kids club, as it were, and making a point to his even his disciples that these persons can become part of his kingdom if uh, respect and love is demonstrated to them. And, um, I mean, I can share anecdotal stories. I don't know that that's necessarily helpful um, at this point. But to say 
that as Christians, as Seventh-day Adventists, our posture toward these persons should be um, that of, of love and to seek to help them any way that we can. Um, the issue of law and order, um, that is something that uh, Congress will have to sort out at some point. I, I'm not at this point without having a specific law to look at, um, advocating any course of action with regard to following it or not following it. Um, I won't speak to that, and even if I had that, I probably still wouldn't speak to it. But um, I, I'm not an expert on all things Ellen White, but I believe there was a there was a uh, an admonition or a teaching from her that said we were not to follow we as Adventists back in the 18, I think it was 1850s, maybe 1854, the Fugitive Slave Act, I think is what it was called. That's correct. And uh, not return um, runaway slaves to their masters. So that was a form of civil disobedience. Now, those are her words. Um, and and again, I'm not suggesting civil disobedience because we haven't looked at anything specific, but um, certainly throughout Scripture, especially in end-time scenarios, you have for example, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3. Uh, you have Daniel in Daniel chapter 6 engaged in acts of civil disobedience because it's in violation of conscience and God honors their uh, disobedience. And I use that in quotes because really <laughs> those laws are probably so patently absurd that uh, even the kings themselves should have known better. But um, yeah, there may come a, a time where conscience does not allow us to follow laws that prevent us from exercising our Christian faith. And it may arise, though it's not often talked about, in the context of our relation to immigrants. It's a really good question. Um, and I'm totally shooting from the hip right now because I didn't, I didn't have anything prepared on that. But those are just my thoughts uh, generally on that topic. Where do you see us prophetically in this nation's history? I see us right there in Revelation 13. I see us right there just as the second beast is making an image to the first beast. I mean, as Seventh-day Adventist, I mean, since I, I was a, I grew up in the church, since I was in diapers, I mean, I heard this, the songs, you know, we have this hope and so forth, and, and, I, and I believe it. But, you know, you have to be blind to not see <laughs> what's going on. I mean, you read the book, The Great Controversy, and you see that the Sunday law is called for by the people, and the congressmen respond to the people, what is Donald Trump if nothing but a populist? He's a face of the people. He's the anti-politician that all the politicians are, are afraid of and are ceding to, caving into. It's truly a populist movement. Look at the rallies. Look at all the people that show up. Look at all of the... <laughs> I mean, the, the, thousands and thousands of people. They're going to be calling for a return to Christianity. They're going to be calling for a return, and already are in, in some contexts, as we've discussed, and probably going to be, the Sunday Law is probably going to be a package of other things that we as Seventh-day Adventists would agree with, and you've heard my statements on abortion earlier, and so I want to just have this caveat by saying part of that may be pro-life, and I may say, amen, hallelujah, let's save those children. But if the other part of it is a Sunday law, that's going to be a problem. And so I think we have to be able to, as Seventh-day Adventists, be able to understand these issues with some depth, be able to make distinctions between things, be able to say yes to this and no to that. 
And I will say, and I'm, I'm not an expert on church history, but Ellen White was very strong uh, as, a, as an abolitionist, someone that opposed slavery. She was also very strong as a person, as a proponent of the temperance movement, okay, which was the concept, I think, primarily relating to the abstinence of alcohol, even to the point of, of seeking its abolition, its, its being outlawed. I mean, that sounds kind of radical today, but it's true. And I think she had written that when you support temperance, you have to be careful not to support other things that may be part of that overall package. And so it's a time for us to get to our roots. It's a time for us to understand what it is that we believe. It's a time for us to be able to um, be able to make distinctions between things because we are going to have to. But I don't want the cart to get before the horse. What I said before is that we need to come to know God and who he is and his character and his, and his loveliness and his beauty. We need to fall in love with him because understanding that, I think really everything that we believe kind of comes from that. I mean, we talked about how we understand freedom. It comes from the concept of love and how God created. Uh, you can look at it the, the Sabbath the same way. I mean, th- there are so many different issues that we have that really come from just a fundamental belief in God. And I'm not trying to oversimplify things or dumb things down. That's not what I'm trying to say. But I think there are first principles. And the most important principle is that we love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourselves. I mean, these are things that we, um, that should take up the primary focus, energies in our time, etc. So I don't know if, I, if I've gone too far astray from your question, but I see us right there in Revelation 13. And so, as a people, in closing, what are we to do as Revelation 13 seems to appear is coming around the horizon? What I'm doing is I'm seeking God. I'm trying to lift him up in whatever I'm able to do, even in silly social media posts, even if I have to look like a fool saying, you know, John 12, 32, if I'm lifted up, I will draw all to me. Um, having little poems that I write about God's love, things like that. that That's something that I'm doing. I'm trying to have conversations, and some of these conversations are difficult to have, and some of them are, I wouldn't say they're heated, but they're pointed with people that I want to push back on some of the things they're saying. These are friends of mine. These aren't people that I'm, you know, strangers or something like that that I would offend. But I'm trying to understand. I'm trying to work through these things. And so I guess... Um, what I'm trying to do is to get to know God, come close to Him, and work through these things, not just for the sake of saving myself, you know, so I can avoid the mark of the beast, but so that I can help other people to see it, so that they can see what the issues are. Um, and I really think, I mean, if you want to know my honest opinion, if you look at those who are enforcing the mark of the beast, it's based in coercion and force. And then you have those that are described in Revelation 14, verses 1 through 5, various descriptions. I think that's I think those are the verses um, where they're following the lamb wherever he goes. It's a voluntary thing. The lamb goes somewhere, they follow him. There's no barking of orders. There's no coercion. There's no twisting of arms. There's a, a love relationship where they're gladly following the lamb they have the Father's name written in their foreheads. There are other descriptions. I, I don't remember them all off the top of my head, but there's a clear distinction between those who believe in force and violence and those that believe in love and nonviolence and winning 
um, as Christ did, as God did, by dying on the cross. So I think the way that uh, we as Christians win the war, um, that Satan may be uh, stamped under our feet soon, as Paul writes, by following Christ's example, by laying down our lives for our friends, laying down our lives for the least of these, laying down our, our lives, as it were, for the immigrant, for those who we even may say, from a position of moral teaching or, or scriptural teaching, maybe outside of, of what we would understand to be uh, appropriate, laying down our lives for those persons, making an effort for those persons, um, not compromising, but making an effort uh, in, in overtures of love to show them Christ so that they may be drawn uh, to him. I believe really, Peter, it really boils down to understanding the character of God, the love of God, and communicating that because I believe that it's impossible well, it's, it's possible, I suppose, but it's very difficult to resist that, uh, that type of love. Amen. Praise the Lord. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. It's a great honor having you. And, and it's, it's my pleasure. It's, it's my honor. I'm humbled, uh, and I'm so thankful for the experience. And uh, ours has been a, a relationship that's uh, gone back several years. And my thoughts of you, Peter, are always so positive, such a loving and faithful Christian. And um, I really appreciate what you're doing. And I'm so very thankful that this podcast is reaching people um, with ideas and concepts that are so necessary right now, that are so timely. And I myself have been blessed by listening. And I hope that what we've talked about today blesses someone. Praise the Lord. To God be the glory that in the midst of our brokenness that he could work something <laughs> in the midst of our lives to Amen. bring forth a message. <laughs> Uh, in closing, can you uh, give us a quick word of prayer yes. as we end this episode? Heavenly Father, we believe that you are just like Jesus, that you are altogether lovely, that you are the chiefest among 10,000, that you want to have a love relationship with us. You're not going to push it upon us. You're not going to use any of Satan's methods or the methods employed by those who enforce the mark of the beast in the end. And Lord, we're so thankful that we get to see so clearly who you are. We look to the cross and we see Jesus dying and, and forgiving those who are crucifying him. And Lord, by your stripes, we are healed. And we just want to come to know you because to know you is eternal life. We pray that you would be with us as individuals, Peter and myself. You'll be with each person that's listening, that you will be with our church. You will give us revival that we would come to know you. And that it wouldn't be a forced revival. It would be a revival like falling in love is a revival. Like coming to know someone intimately is a revival. That praise would spring forth spontaneously as we see who you are and your great love for us. And let us, Lord, be fools for you. Though many of us are professionals, very, very smart people, let us be fools. Let us, let us preach Christ and him crucified. Let's, let's share our faith. Help us to do that. Give us opportunity. Help us to understand these issues. And I pray for a special blessing on this, this podcast and this ministry that you, would, that you would magnify its, its reach and its influence that you would give it exponential growth so that persons may be able to, to learn 
of these issues for this time. Such an important time, such a, such a privilege to be able to, to be followers of you and to shine your light in this world. So few know, so few know. Help us to share what we know so that they too may know. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.